Good morning to you, church. It is good to be together in God's house with God's people. We're going to be in Acts chapter number 9 today for our study. Again, that's Acts chapter number 9. And uh, let me say, if you're new to First Hurst, or maybe you just haven't been with us for a while, okay, let me just quickly bring you up to speed. We have, uh, for some time now, we've been making our way through the book of Acts in the New Testament. And as you're turning there, you can find Acts early in the New Testament. So it's after the four Gospels that introduce the New Testament. So we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts is the very next book there. As you're turning to Acts chapter number nine, you'll remember last week, uh, Ryan brought the message from the first part of chapter nine about Saul's conversion, how he was converted to faith in Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Now, remember, we know that Saul had heard the facts of the gospel already. He knew the facts of the gospel. Uh, he'd heard it from Stephen. I think he'd probably heard it from, from a lot of other believers as well, those whom he had taken into captivity. I think they had shared the gospel with him. But Saul, even though he knew the facts of the gospel, he had not yet believed the gospel. He didn't yet believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior and the only one who can save us from our sin. That is until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus that day. And there, by God's grace, through faith in Jesus as the Savior, Saul was transformed on the Damascus road. Finally, he repented of his sin. He trusted in the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. And that was the first half of Acts chapter number 9. We're going to finish that chapter today. But, but as you're turning there, I want to first take you quickly back some 40 years or so, okay, to the early 1980s. Think real hard. Uh, okay, some of us, that, that was a long time ago, all right? I was a kid at the time, and I remember one summer when I had to go every day to a babysitter's apartment. I'm going to tell you, this was not my favorite way to spend the summer, all right? That's just the way it was that year. Woe is me, okay? While all the other kids were, you know, having a great time, living it up, I'm sure they had the run of the town of Euless, right? Um, I was stuck in an apartment just watching boring old TV. Now, these were the days when there was still only one TV in anybody's house. Why would you need more than one, right? There weren't very many channels to pick from anyway. And I'm telling you, in those days, if it wasn't dark 30 in the morning or like 3 to 4 o'clock in the afternoon, there wasn't anything for kids to watch anyway. So that long, hot summer of 1980-something, I remember every day at the babysitter's apartment, we watched, well, we started with the morning game shows, all right? And, uh, you know, like, press your luck. You remember press your luck? No whammies, right? You know, actually, that one was pretty good. I, I kind of liked that one. But then came the dreaded late morning to mid-afternoon window of time when there was nothing on, but guess what? Soap operas. Oh, like, gag me with a spoon, man. That's an 80s reference, okay, if you didn't pick up on that. I mean, if you're looking for a good way to bore and seemingly torture an eight to nine-year-old boy, man, that babysitter, she figured it out, okay? Every day, I was forced against my will to become a second-hand watcher of those awful soap operas. These it was just all these people and feelings and relationships and blah, blah. I mean, it's just awful, painful. Now, I will tell you today, by God's great grace, He has delivered me, all right, from those days. And um, thankfully, there's only one of those soap operas I even remember. And it always started the same way. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives, right? Just in case you don't remember, we're going to put that up here for you. All right, so... I'm going to tell you, those words are seared into my brain. 
as are the images of these fictitious people from the fictitious town of Salem somewhere, all right? The likes of Victor, Kir- I don't know why I remember this name, Victor Kyriakos, <laughs> all right? I'm telling you, and all these Bradys, there's Roman and Marlena and Hope and Bo and some guy with an eye patch, I think his name was Steve or something. Anyway, now I will tell you over the last 40 years since that painful summer, there have been half a dozen or so times when I just, like I sat down to get my hair cut or sat down in a doctor's office waiting room and I look up at the TV and it's like, wait, this show's still on? Like, Days of Our Lives is on again. Not only is it still on, it's still got the same people on the show 20, 30, 40 years later. Now, I think some of those, they're the same actors, but maybe not the same characters, all right? I'm not real sure, but I think some of them, like, uh, the character was in an accident, all right? And then was in a coma for a few months, and then when he woke up, he realized he wasn't really that person. He'd been brainwashed to believe he was somebody else, but now his long-lost identical twin brother showed up out of the blue and took him out and took over his life, and I don't know, maybe that same actor's playing three different roles over the decades. Does that sound like soap opera right there? Yeah. Seriously, though, just a few months ago, I'm not kidding. I sat down. I, I went to get my hair cut. It was a Friday midday, sat in the chair. They swiveled that chair around to look at the TV, and there's Marlena Brady. 40 years and more than one plastic surgery later, all right, she's still right there. The days of our lives. I couldn't believe it. In fact, days of our lives this daily soap opera. It didn't start in the 80s. It goes all the way back to 1965 since this show started. All right, now, um, that's, I'm going to do the math for you. That's 58 years it's been running and airing these daily episodes. Last Friday's episode, two days ago, no, I did not watch it, all right, but I looked this up. That was episode number 14,550. Are you kidding me? You thought your Netflix series had a lot of episodes to binge this weekend, right? These soap operas, man, I I don't recommend them, by the way, if you hadn't picked up on that yet. But they're known for following the trials and tribulations of multiple characters all in the same show. In fact, one of the identifying marks of a soap opera is that each individual episode It follows all these different storylines going different directions and they aren't necessarily even interrelated. And the way it's laid out, it's like you get 45 seconds where you've got this couple, they're probably having an affair. And then then all of a sudden it cuts suddenly to two uh, two minutes of some family in the living room and there's big drama going on and everybody's mad. And then all of a sudden, just as quickly, it cuts over to a couple people in the back alley and they're planning to take somebody out, right? They're not just going to ruin their life, they're going to end their life, right? This is kind of what goes on. It's just this very staccato rhythm of all these different trials and tribulations for all these different people. And right now you're like, great, Jason, why are you telling me that on Sunday morning? Well, I'm glad you asked. All right, because this second half of Acts chapter number nine, it's laid out kind of like we would think of a soap opera episode. It just bounces from one quick story over to another, and before you know it, you're in the middle of a different drama all of a sudden. In fact, we're going to see three different stories of trials and tribulations all in this one chapter. But as we work through these brief narratives today, we're also going to see how they actually fit together to teach us some timeless and important truth about how the gospel prevails even through trials and tribulations. We begin in Acts chapter number 9, verse number 19, the second part of verse 19. So, 
First half of the chapter, Saul was saved on the road to Damascus. He's hanging out in Damascus. It says there in 19b, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, Saul, he he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. He wasted no time using his gifts for the Lord. And all who heard him were amazed, and they said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? Of those who called upon, his, uh, called upon this name, these were Jews, of course, who were questioning this. Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Like, I thought this is the guy that was supposed to be imprisoning those Christians. What's he doing joining them? Verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in, in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He used his knowledge, extensive knowledge of the Old Testament to prove to them that Jesus really was the fulfillment of all these prophecies. Verse 23, when many days had passed, and it's believed that might have been as, as long as three years, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. So, they're not just questioning him now. Now they want, to, they want to end his life. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. If he came through the city gates, he was a goner. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, so he escapes Damascus, he makes his way to Jerusalem. There he attempted to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But finally Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so verse 28 says, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. That means that finally the disciples kind of accepted him, and he was, he was able to be part of the group, all right? He was preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews. But they were seeking to kill him. Okay, he left Damascus because they wanted to kill him. Now he comes to Jerusalem. Well, they want to kill him there too. Um, And verse number 30 says, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit the church, it multiplied. So, what we learned from this first episode in this chapter is that when the tables are turned, still the gospel prevails. Remember last week, Saul's unexpected conversion uh, became a Christian on the road to Damascus, and following that experience, Saul found out real quickly (laughs) that the Christian life isn't always real easy. People questioned him in verse number 21. He was making enemies as he was preaching the gospel, as we read in verses 23 and 24. The the tables indeed had turned on him, as we would say. He was the once leading persecutor of the church, and now he finds himself the persecuted, as they're trying to kill him. He'd been making a name for himself among the Jewish elite by ravaging the church. I mean, he had this growing list of notches on his belt for all these Christians that he had taken into captivity, imprisoned, and many of them, no doubt, were even killed. But now that he trusted Jesus himself, the tables turned real quick. And instead of an easygoing, calm path that was just lined with roses and everything's great, no, Saul found himself on the run for his very life. He had to dangerously escape the city of Damascus, let down, huddled in a basket. When even uh, even then, when he made it back to Jerusalem, things were still tough. 
This was the hub of Christianity at that time. The apostles were still there, kind of holding down the fort, if you will. And I mean, uh, surely, surely that would be a safe place. Surely they'd understand there. But is it really any surprise that the believers in Jerusalem were still afraid of him? Verse number uh, 26 tells us they questioned his motives. Very naturally, they thought, he's just trying to be a double agent here. He wants to come in and get in among our ranks. He's going to rise up, and then one day he's going to turn on all of us. They didn't trust him. Isn't that the kind of the plot of every spy movie ever made, by the way? You know, that he's going to be a double agent that turns on them. At this point, Saul, he's like a man without a country. The Jews who once lauded him, they're trying to kill him. The followers of Christ who had feared him, still didn't trust him. Both sides saw him as a double agent. Saul had nowhere to turn, rejection everywhere. Until finally Barnabas intercedes for him, and and finally those Jerusalem believers, well, they understood the power of the gospel to transform a life, and finally they believed that the, the gospel had indeed transformed Saul. But it took the intercession of Barnabas. So the brethren had come around to him, But the Jews in Jerusalem, they're still trying to end his life. He had to escape again. This time he's escaping Jerusalem, home base where he felt safe most of his adult life. He goes home to Tarsus. Indeed, the tables had turned against him. But in spite of all Saul's personal troubles, still what we see here is that the gospel prevailed. And maybe it was the powerful story of how the gospel had transformed Saul's heart. Like that was so incredible and unexpected even for the believers. But people began talking about it. Gospel conversations were had. The the word began to spread. Verse 31 then makes it clear the gospel prevailed. It says the church, in spite of all that, the church had peace. It was being built up even though persecution was trying to tear it down. The church even multiplied in that time. Those hardships that Saul faced They couldn't stop the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, neither do your hardships. They're not going to stop the gospel. I know it, it may feel like the tables have turned on you. Now, you're probably not facing death threats like Saul did, but maybe you're just wrecked with fear, anxiety, worry, like you would imagine Saul would have been knowing that his life was in danger. Maybe you feel like you're a man without a country, so to speak, like you're just rejected everywhere you go and you can't find anyone that will accept you like what Saul experienced. Perhaps you're crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have the tables turned against me? Let me tell you that in spite of those trials you're facing today, in spite of the worries and the fears and the anxieties and the threats, the gospel will prevail for God's glory. With that, we cut scene. We jump abruptly to another story in verse 32 about another struggle. If you look with me there, verse 32 says this. Now, as Peter went here and there, wait, wait, Peter, we hadn't heard from Peter in a while. All of a sudden, we're, we're back to him. Like, doesn't that feel kind of like a soap opera episode? All of a sudden, boom, here you go. And so uh, Peter went here and there among them all. He came down also to the saints who lived at Luda, which is how you pronounce that word. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, 
Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. He was miraculously healed in that instant. And all the residents of Luda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. So we saw that with Paul when the tables are turned, but we see here with Aeneas that even when the struggle is real, the gospel still prevails. Saul's out of the picture now in, in, the, in the narrative. <coughs> Excuse me. Attention turns to Peter's ministry in Luda, and that's where Peter encountered Aeneas. Now, we don't know a lot about Aeneas. All we know is in these verses right here that we just read, but he was confronted, uh, or excuse me, but Aeneas was paralyzed. That's what we do know. We're not sure just how extensive that paralysis was, but he was paralyzed so much so that he was confined to bed for eight years. Every day he had the devastating daily impact of sustained paralysis. Not only did that mean he was bedridden, but we can imagine it probably also meant he was utterly dependent on other people for everything, all, even the most basic needs from feeding himself to personal hygiene, restroom needs, everything in between. This paralysis meant Aeneas was unable to work or provide for his family. The struggle was very real for him. Now, Saul had dealt with legitimate and perhaps even crippling worry and threat of harm. But here's Aeneas. It wasn't just threats that he was facing. The struggle was all real for him. He had this very defining struggle, even though he had trusted Jesus. He's one of the believers that Peter came to see. But then as we read through Peter, in the powerful name of Jesus, Aeneas miraculously was healed of his infirmity. And catch this, the Lord graciously used that testimony of the miracle working power of God in Aeneas's life. He used that testimony to see the entire town of Luda and of Sharon, the surrounding area, come to faith in the Lord. They turned to the Lord, verse 35 says. Did you get that? Entire towns turned to the Lord because entire towns were talking about what God had done in the life of Aeneas. Gospel conversations were happening, and the Lord used that to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. And so even through his struggle, the gospel prevailed there. And you know, maybe you feel kind of like Aeneas, it's not just worry and anxiety, but the all-too-real struggle, painful hardships that you're facing. Maybe you feel paralyzed, unable to even take a step forward. Let me tell you that when the struggle is real, God is still working. It's like we sometimes sing in song that even when I don't see it, God, you're working. And even when I don't feel it, you're working. I want you to know, Christian, he is working in your life. And in spite of the trials and difficulties, he's working through your life. He's working all around your life so that the gospel may be extended, so that testimony of God's miracle working power in your life can be shared through gospel conversations with others. And like it did through Aeneas, the gospel will prevail. And just that quickly, like a soap opera episode, the staccato narrative now cuts to yet another short story. This one's in a different town called Joppa. Now there was in Joppa, verse 36, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and even died. And when they had washed her, her body, they laid her in an upper room. 
Now, since Luda was near Joppa, remember Luda is where Peter and Aeneas were. Since Luda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Verse 39, so Peter rose, he went with them, and when he arrived in Joppa, they took him to the upper room. Now, all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Sounds like Dorcas had a gift for, you know, she was a gifted seamstress, and she used that talent to bless others in all those acts of charity, much like many um, folks do here at First Baptist Hearst as part of the Quilting for Christ ministry. Verse number 40 says, but Peter put them all outside. He knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and raised her up. Then he called the saints and the widows. He presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, like it made the evening headlines, right? Actually, it spread through word of mouth and gospel conversations. People were talking about this incredible thing that God did. And it, came, it became known throughout all Joppa. And what? Many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So what we learn here is that when all hope seems lost, still the gospel prevails. Now this narrative centers around a lady named Tabitha. And as it tells us, that name's also translated Dorcas. Now if I got to pick between the two, I'm probably going with Tabitha, right? I mean, Dorcas has kind of taken on a different meaning in recent generations, a little different from what it meant in biblical times. But uh, here's Dorcas, Tabitha, a godly woman, a believer who's full of good works, acts of charity. She's serving the Lord. She's blessing people's lives, doing great ministry. And all of a sudden she gets sick and dies. Why would the Lord take her life so suddenly? Why would he stop her from reaching more people? You know, those are questions that we just don't know how to answer. You see, when, when death comes to our families and we ask those questions, we can only trust in the sovereignty of our great God, even when all hope seems lost. In the face of death, there was understandably grief. There was pain. There was uh, sorrow. There were tears at the death of this saintly woman. As verse 39 says, it may have seemed to those left behind that all hope was lost. But followers of Christ there in Joppa, they'd heard reports that Peter was nearby in Luda, and they heard about, I think, they'd heard reports of what happened with Aeneas. The, the word was spreading. Gospel conversations were happening, and they got word about that. And I think they're celebrating this massive gospel impact, but they're like, hey, maybe we could get Peter to come down here. Maybe there'll be another miracle. Peter comes. And again, he was used by God. Dorcas, Tabitha, incredibly was raised to life, as we read. And this unexplainable, mysterious miracle could be attributed only to the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so once again, through trials and tribulations of God's people, many believed in the Lord, it said, because many were talking about what happened. They were having gospel conversations in the wake of that, and many people believed in the Lord. Many came to faith in Jesus Christ, because you see, even in the face of death itself, the gospel prevailed. And friend, you may be one who finds yourself kind of caught up in the wake 
of a, of a cherished loved one's death. And whether that's been two months or two years or perhaps even two decades, you may still be reeling from the pain of loss. And maybe you feel like all hope seems lost. But it's really important to notice the wording used there, seems. Because as followers of Christ, we're told over in 1 Thessalonians that we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. Now, we have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Because even in death, the gospel prevails. We have these three episodes laid out kind of like a soap opera. We see various trials and tribulations, escalating degrees of despair. Saul dealt with worry and threats. Aeneas faced a very real struggle, daily hardships. Dorcas and went all the way to death. And yet through all these troubles, the gospel prevailed to the glory of God. The church multiplied, entire towns turned to the Lord, and many people believed in the Lord is what we read. I want to tell you, church, that in our lives, as we walk with God, we are promised that there will be hardships, there will be trials, there will be suffering, and yet we're also promised that the gospel will prevail and that God will use even our suffering to get glory unto himself. You see, like Saul learned, your hardships, as difficult as they may be, overwhelming, but they won't stop the gospel from advancing and transforming lives. No, as you testify instead to God's goodness and his faithfulness through those trials, the church can have peace and comfort, can be built up and even multiply like we read right here. As you praise him, as you trust in him, and even, even when the tables are turned against you. Like we saw with Aeneas, even though, even though you're struggling, the gospel will prevail. In other words, God may use your debilitating struggle to advance the gospel in ways that would not be possible if everything was easy and rosy. So hear me, church, don't give up when the struggle is real. Instead, speak up about the power of God who works miraculously even through that struggle. Use it to have gospel conversations. And like Aeneas, I believe you'll see some folks around you turn to the Lord. Don't give up. Speak up. And then look up to see what God will do to glorify his name. And even when all hope seems lost, remember that we grieve, but we grieve with hope because the gospel will prevail. We're reminded of these same truths in Psalm number 46. As we turn back there, and we'll put these on the screen for you, and I'm just going to read some select verses from Psalm 46, where it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It's kind of what we've been talking about today, trouble in our lives. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth even gives way. Verse 7 says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. Consider what God has done, even in allowing trials and difficulties, trib uh, tribulations or desolations. God says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. In other words, the gospel will prevail. And so no matter what trials and difficulties we may face, we can rest confidently in the Lord because we know that the Lord of hosts is with us. 
The God of Jacob is our fortress. Folks, this is not some silly soap opera. This is every bit as real as it gets, that even through our worries, even when we struggle, and even in the face of death when hope may seem lost, the gospel will prevail. Amen? Amen. Church, I said the gospel will prevail. Amen? Amen? (laughs) So let us use those opportunities to speak about the mighty works of our God have gospel conversations. Let's pray together. We thank you, God, that even in the struggle, even through the worries and anxieties, threats, even in the face of death itself, your gospel will prevail. Thank you that you've transformed lives by the power of the gospel. Thank you that you're still transforming lives by the power of the gospel. Thank you that Whatever we go through, it's not going to stop it, but rather you'll use what we go through to help advance the gospel for others to hear the truth, the, 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 the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. God, help us to have that perspective, to recognize you are sovereign. You are our refuge and our fortress, a very present help, even in trouble. And you're going to be exalted among the nations, even because of what may feel like desolations in our lives. So God, would you help us not only have that perspective, but to act on it and to see not just an opportunity to complain, but rather to see an opportunity to express your greatness and your glory, your faithfulness, your mercy in our lives. Help us to have gospel conversations even surrounding our struggles to the glory of your name. We pray all this in your name today. Amen.